Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Stop by Walters before or after visiting Enchant Washington, D.C. at Nationals Park. Walk on over to Walters this weekend for World Cup action and UFC 282. Join us for the World Cup finals on December 18th as well. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Thursday, December 8th, 2022, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was in San Diego, site of the just-concluded 2022 MLB Winter Meetings. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi Podcast. Happy holidays. Hey, new theme song for the Nats Chat Podcast. Our thanks to the great Tim Newmark uh, for that song. Nice to be with you for another off-season installment of the podcast. Still no sale of the Nats. They are still owned by the learners. We do have a lot of ground to cover on this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast, despite not a lot (laughs) having happened for the Nats at the winter meetings. These were the first true winter meetings in three years. And Mark, I would venture to say that these were the least stressful winter meetings that you've ever had to cover in covering the Nats. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, certainly least stressful in a long, long time, Alan. It was it was so striking. You say it was the first one in three years. Well, the last one, 2019, was right here in San Diego at the same hotel. And walking into it on the first night on, on Sunday, it was so striking. You couldn't help but think about what that was like last time here three years ago. The Nationals are coming off the World Series title. They are the talk of the winter meetings. The whole issue, and it turned out they both came to a head while we were here, are they going to re-sign Strasburg? Are they going to re-sign Rendon? That all happened here. And then to think about three years later, they are, I don't know if they're number one as far as the least interesting or the biggest afterthought at these meetings, but they were close to it. And it's just really underscores how far they have fallen in those three years since. And, you know, the highlights of it were going to be, we knew from the beginning, the highlights were going to be the draft lottery and the rule five draft, something the Nats had not participated in, in a dozen years. That's where they are right now. And it's a little discouraging in some respects to think about how far they've fallen and the fact that around the rest of the baseball world, the nationals are an afterthought right now. Yeah. I mean, it was telling that probably the biggest Nationals-related item from the winter meetings was something that didn't even happen with the Nats, and that was Trey Turner agreeing on this 11-year, $300 million deal with the Philadelphia Phillies, and just the like outrage that that sparked from so many people, the reaction that that sparked from so many people. But yeah, I mean, beyond getting the number two pick, and by the way, thank goodness the Nats at least got the number two pick in the draft lottery. I know it doesn't really matter that much where you pick if you're picking in the top 10. Mike Rizzo essentially said that to you guys, but you know, you have the worst record in the sport. You'd like to at least get a top two pick, and the Nats did do that in the draft lottery on Tuesday night. And yeah, they take Thad Ward with the number one pick in the Rule 5 draft on Wednesday. It was striking to me, though, in watching Mike Rizzo's and Davey Martinez's extended media sessions with you guys over the winter meetings because they said a lot, and in a lot of ways, they said nothing. And kind of my takeaway from listening to them was there really just isn't anything to say right now. You know, like there just isn't that much to talk about. Like we all kind of know the deal. 
They're rebuilding. They were terrible last year. They're probably going to be bad for at least a few more seasons. They have traded away basically every trade ship they had. You know, the farm system has been improved, but it's still not where it needs to be. And, you know, looming over all of this is this ownership uncertainty, which isn't going away. And the vibe that I think we are getting now is that this ownership uncertainty may not be going away for a while. It feels like, you know, something that we thought might be, hopefully would be resolved by November may not be resolved here for a good bit. Yeah, that was my biggest takeaway from these meetings was at least privately, publicly, whatever you want to say, there did not seem to be a whole lot of optimism among anyone with the Nationals or even the commissioner of baseball, by the way, because he was asked about it. Very little optimism that that sale is happening anytime soon. And the domino effect of that appears to be, if you read between the lines here, that is they are not going to be spending hardly anything this winter on their roster. They've got a few spots that they are going to be able to fill. They're going to go get another starting pitcher. They're probably going to get at least one more hitter, but they are not in the market for any free agent of real consequence. We're going to be talking about one-year deals, probably not even the kind of deals we saw last year. Remember, they gave $15 million to Nelson Cruz last year. Maybe that didn't work out. Maybe it wasn't the best decision on their part, but I don't even think they're going to be in that same market in terms of dollars of what they're looking for this time. There were a lot of people behind the scenes with the Nationals that I have to say, are kind of discouraged right now. They understand the situation they're in. They know this is a long process. It wasn't going to all of a sudden turn around here this winter and going into next spring. But I think there was at least a feeling of, okay, if the sale can happen, or if at least it looks like it's coming up somewhat soon and the learners say, okay, go ahead and spend a little money, that there were a few spots they could invest in right now to help bolster what they have, the young core that they're starting to build together. And at least put them in a position to improve enough in 2023 that next winter you can say, okay, we can start going forward a little bit, spending some money, trying to really take that next step. A lot of time between now and then, we don't know. A lot of things could change. But as of right now, most people around the organization feel like they are just stuck and that nothing is going to happen until the team is sold. A lot of people are in limbo. Their jobs are in limbo. Nobody has job security beyond this next year. It was a really discouraged group, I think, and that was my biggest takeaway from these meetings, and I'm not certain that I came here thinking that that was going to be the biggest takeaway. I mean, it's a tricky deal because with where the Nats are on the win curve, they really shouldn't be spending right now. Like, I think it would be foolish to be spending anything in the way of significant money, so I think you very much could make the case, hey, if you're ever going to have ownership uncertainty, Now's kind of the time, because even if you had new ownership, there's a decent chance, if not a good chance, you wouldn't be spending money anyway. On the other hand, it's never good or healthy to be part of an entity that is in limbo like this. You know, like that's not good for organizational morale. That's not good if you're trying to spend on infrastructure, although it does sound like the Nats are beefing up their analytics staffing. We can get to that in a little bit. But with this sale thing, it is remarkable. So the commissioner of Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, on Tuesday said that he hopes that the sale of the Los Angeles Angels is completed by opening day 2023, could not offer a comparable time frame for the sale of the Nats. Understand the timeline of all of this. We learned back in April that the Nats were up for sale. We didn't learn until August that the Angels were up for sale. And yet, per Manfred, the Angels sale is going to be done by opening day 2023. The Nats sale, which we learned of in April and may well have started well before then, isn't going to be completed, it sounds like, by opening day 2023, or at least isn't tracking that way. Man, this is taking a while. You know, in our last installment of the podcast, we talked about, hey, the commanders might get sold before the Nats, may well have gone on the market after the Nats, end up getting sold before the Nats. We'll see. The Angels, same thing here. Man, this is something. And, you know, we shouldn't be surprised by it, right? I mean, the learners are known to be tough negotiators and are known to grind out deals. And the Masson situation complicates everything with a sale. So none of this is shocking that this sale isn't happening at like lightning speed isn't shocking. But yeah, you know, grab a Snickers. It may take a while. Like, maybe we are deep into the season. Maybe we are into next offseason with the team having been sold. I don't think you can take anything off the table at this point. No, you can't. And I think that was definitely the impression I got from people with the team. Now, you know, there's only a handful of people who truly know what's going on with it. Most are just speculating based on what they hear secondhand or, or what they're just feeling within the organization. But You know, we talked about it late in the season, how there seemed to be more signs 
that it was less likely to happen over the winter than maybe we thought originally. And that has only gotten worse. And you're even at a point now where even if somehow something came together fairly soon, it's probably too late to make much of a difference this off season. You don't just immediately transfer ownership of a team that quickly and then say, okay, let's go out and spend money. Like It takes some time to do that. And so even if they were on the verge of it, and I have no reason to believe that they are on the verge of it, it's probably too late to have any tangible difference on how they approach this winter. And so all those things are discouraging. You mentioned it. This is a complicated thing. There are multiple reasons for why this is dragging on. You have an ownership group in the learners who, as you said, very tough negotiators. Once they've decided this is what we believe the team is worth, they're going to hold to that. They're not just going to give in. And so if they are still asking for a sale price that is maybe more in tune with a team that just won the World Series in 2019, they may have to hold on for a while until they find somebody to approach that number. And, you know, of course, the TV deal is a sticking point to it all. It's a really complicated situation and any new owner, and rightfully so, wants to have some clarity there. And so I was in the commissioner's Q&A with the members of the BBWAA when that question was asked. And that was another moment from this week that you thought, oh, wow, like he, you know, Rob Manfred isn't going to commit to a lot of things in these public sessions. When he committed to the angels the way that he did, and then gave the complete opposite answer on the nationals question, that was like, a, oh, man, even he's acknowledging there that this thing is nowhere close to being done. Again, who knows? Maybe behind the scenes, something can work together real quick that we don't realize, but it would not shock me at this point if this thing moves into next season. And once you get into the season, who knows? Maybe it keeps going on longer. That There's certainly fear among a lot of people in the organization that that's exactly what's going to happen. Hey, are you a law firm partner or associate stuck in the minor leagues like Joey Fourbags Manessis? Your employer might be holding you back from your true potential. Maybe another law firm can get you what you need. More money, better support, better client contacts, or a better brand name. You need a better agent. You need Mason Kalfas. Mason Kalfas, he started Zenith Legal in 2015 to be the best legal recruiter in the nation, and he has succeeded. He has placed partners and associates at over half of the largest 100 law firms in the U.S. He specializes in working with lawyers at major law firms and government agencies such as the DOJ and SEC. Like Joey Menezes' big breakout, Mason Kalfas can help you identify what you really need to accelerate your legal career. He will work with you to find the best law firm for your practice and negotiate you the absolute best deal, a deal worthy of a superstar free agent. The legal market still is very strong in 2022, and there's no better time than the present to think about making a move. You need to call Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal. His number is 202-486-3535. Or you can check out his website, zenithlegal.com. He has a team of recruiters across the country, but you will get tons of personal attention from Mason. It's time to launch your career into the upper deck. Call Mason Kalfas today. Go Nats and go Joey. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. T 
Yeah, we you know we kind of blended uh, the uh, you know the upside of the pitcher with kind of the the certainty of uh, making it easier to to carry the player throughout the, throughout the season. So you know we liked to, we liked uh, this player. We think he's got more left in the tank. He's a year farther farther removed from Tommy John surgery. He's got a four pitch mix. He's he, uh, he's around the plate. Uh, he, he's got some uh, pitchability and some stuff. And we think that there's like I said a little bit more in the tank at, uh, when he gets farther away from the surgery. Well, in terms of that which did happen with the Nationals over the course of the 2022 MLB winter meetings, uh, like we said, the Nats did get the number two pick in the 2023 MLB draft via the first ever MLB draft lottery that took place on Tuesday night. This is part of the new CBA. The idea is to discourage tanking. The first six choices in each draft now are determined by lottery. The Nats were one of three teams that had the best chances of winning the lottery, 16.5%. Actually had a better chance of getting the number seven pick, 19%, than the Nats had of getting that top pick at 16.5%. But like I said, they did get the number two pick in the 2023 uh, MLB draft. Uh, so that's good. I mean, again, I don't think that it matters that much whether you're first or second or third or whatever, but you know, you'd rather be higher than lower. That's pretty clear. And then the other item was this Rule 5 draft selection. The Nats on Wednesday taking pitcher Thad Ward, who spent the last five seasons in the Boston Red Sox organization. He shockingly is a Tommy John guy, underwent Tommy John surgery in June 2021. You know, Mike Rizzo loves that. Man, have the Nats had a thing for Tommy John guys over the years? But yeah, it was remarkable to me in reading your preview of the Rule 5 draft that the Nats had not made a Rule 5 draft choice since 2010. I mean, there are teams that like make a living off the Rule 5 draft. The Orioles over the years have made so many picks in Rule 5 drafts that the Nats hadn't made a single selection since 2010 was something. Now, I know most of you listening probably know this in case you don't. The way that it works with a Rule 5 draft pick is that he must remain on the Major League roster for the entire season. And that includes at least 90 days on the active roster. So you can't just stash the guy on an injured list. If you can't keep the guy on the Major League roster the whole year, you end up losing the guy. But the Nats, because they're rebuilding, are in like prime position to have a guy like Thad Ward on the team for the entire year, even if he struggles. And it sounds like the Nats have designs on him potentially being a starter for them. So, you know, you kind of suck it up. He's going to be with you for the entire year. And even if he struggles, you know, you're in a position in which you can afford to have him struggle for you. Yeah. So this is a position they have not been in in a long time. That's why they haven't taken anyone in that draft since 2010. Do you remember Elvin Ramirez and Brian Broderick, the last two Rule 5 picks? Probably not. Ramirez never pitched for them. Broderick, I think, lasted for about a month before he was sent back. Let's make this thing clear. Most Rule 5 picks do not stick. They end up being sent back to the other team. It's rare that somebody actually makes it through a whole season and even rarer still that they become a consistent big league producer. But it does happen. There've been some decent ones over the years. The best one in Nationals history, you got to go all the way back to Jesus Flores, who was the catcher for a while. But when you have the number one pick, you've got your pick of literally anybody who's out there who's available. And what I think is interesting with this is the strategy behind it. You don't necessarily go take the best player, the best prospect who's available. It has to be the guy who you think can actually stay on your roster, who might be somewhat close to big league ready, that you can stash him away for a year, not ruin his development, and then maybe get something out of him after that. So in Thad Ward, you have a guy who's going to be 26 here in the next month. So he's not young. He has pitched at double A. I think it was seven starts there. And then he pitched in the Arizona Fall League. And he had success at both of those. It's a small sample since he came back from the Tommy John surgery. But he was the Red Sox's minor league pitcher of the year in 2019. He was a fifth round pick originally. He profiles as a starter, has a deep arsenal. Uh, it's funny, Mike Rizzo said he was a four pitch guy. When we talked to Ward himself, he said he's six pitches. Maybe a little Annabelle Sanchez going on there, though better stuff, I think, than Annabelle. What the idea here is you stretch him out in spring training, you know, see what you have from him. But most likely he goes to the bullpen. He could be a multi-inning reliever, probably pitching in low leverage spots. It's it's the Paolo Espino role from early last year, <laughs> pitching the blowout games. And then maybe over time you need a starter. You get a look at him there. But the idea is essentially just get through this season keeping him on the roster, and maybe, just maybe, he's good enough to actually challenge for a spot in the rotation the following year. It's worth it. It's $100,000. If you give him back, it's $50,000 back to you. It's a low-risk gamble. Give a shot at it. You had the number one pick. You had your choice of anybody you wanted. Sure, I wouldn't be 
counting on anything here. You were not talking about the next big star of the Nationals, anything like that. But if you can somehow get him to be a productive big league pitcher and have him for several years, either as a starter or reliever, then that's, you know, I think money well spent. And this is the kind of stuff that the Nats need to be doing, you know, rule five picks, waiver acquisitions, things of that nature. Because like I said, their major trade chips are gone. There's no longer a Juan Soto to trade. There's no longer a Josh Bell to trade. Like they need to keep adding to their prospect inventory because the farm system still is not where you need it to be. And until you're good again, it's all about just collecting as many pieces as possible and just seeing what sticks. And so, yeah, they got to be open to things like the Rule 5 draft and just kind of see what ends up happening. Uh, So this is our first installment of the Nats Chat podcast since November 7th. There are a few things that actually have happened with the Nats since we last spoke on the podcast, just to kind of review some of the things that have gone down. November 14th, the Nats announced that they had placed pitcher Seth Romero on unconditional release waivers. So the Seth Romero bust uh, has been officially certified here. He's now gone from the organization. He got arrested again, November 13th. Uh, He was arrested in Texas on charges of driving while intoxicated and possession of a controlled substance. Second time in the year 2022 that he got arrested. He also got arrested on January 14th in Texas, got charged with driving while intoxicated. You know, I just would say this, this guy may have a problem. So I, I hope if he does that he gets his life together because this is beyond just like a first round pick that didn't work out. I mean, it seems like this guy may have some real issues. So I do hope that if that's the case, uh, those issues do get addressed. November 18th was a Friday night. It was uh, the deadline by which MLB teams needed to tender contracts to arbitration eligible players or else those players became free agents. The Nats did not tender contracts to two notable arbitration eligible players, Luke Voigt and Eric Fetty. Now, Fetty probably isn't shocking, although given the Nats' lack of starting pitching options, I was actually a little surprised by it. But the Luke Voigt non-tendering was interesting, so we have that. And then we had the Nats' uh, most significant free agent acquisition of the offseason so far. And I put significant in quotation marks, but the Nats on November 29th announced that they had agreed on a one-year contract with free agent Jamer Candelario. And I actually think that this move makes sense. I know people have mocked it and I get the mocking of it, right? I mean, Jamer Candelario, like, okay, print the World Series tickets, but versatile player, a guy who does have some upside. He was a very good hitter over the 2020 and 2021 seasons. You're buying low on him. Okay, fine. But, you know, he's a stopgap guy who can play multiple positions and maybe be traded to a contender in 2023. So I guess with all of that kind of on the table, did any of those developments surprise you or stand out to you in any notable ways? Those things that have happened since we last did a podcast. Yeah, let's uh, run through them kind of piece by piece. Seth Romero did not surprise me. I think the fact that he survived as long as he did was maybe more surprising. And it shows that if he had not been a first round pick, they probably would have given up on him a lot sooner. I can tell you that people with the organization said they tried and tried and tried to help him get over these obvious issues that he has with alcohol and other just maturity issues in that. And it just didn't happen. And they got to a point they said, we can't afford to keep doing this. So they've had all kinds of trouble with first round picks over the years. We've gone through it, but it's pretty safe to say that Seth Romero is the biggest bust of them all because he is the one that on draft day, knowing the red flags that were there, you said, is this really worth it? And it turned out to be worst case scenario in the end for him, both on the field and off the field. So not shocking to me that that happened, but it was bound to happen and finally needed to be done. The non-tenders, I wasn't surprised by Fetty. Look, they gave him a lot of opportunities and they desperately wanted him to show just that he could give you five decent innings every time he took the mound. And it just didn't happen. He could not do that consistently. And by the end of the season, I saw a guy who felt and looked a little lost didn't really have answers for it. And I think he probably knew that this was coming. Now, they've got to replace that because he was a member of the rotation. And as you said, they don't have a lot of depth there. So they're probably going to end up spending more money than they would have on Eric Fetty. And you hope they can get somebody who is better than that. We'll see if they can do that. Luke Voigt, I went into the offseason thinking that that was a question mark. And you know, let's remember, he was the throw-in in the trade and not really a part of the long-term plan. But I did think, given the lack of power they had, the fact that they also got rid of Yadiel Hernandez, they outrighted him off the 40-man roster, that they were in a position where they don't really have 
like you're creating openings. They're actively choosing to create openings in their lineup holes. And by non-tendering Voight, that's what happened by not wanting to pay him about $8 million or so. Now they got Candelario. They still need more though. They still need at least one more, whether it's a left fielder, first baseman, DH, somebody who can do all of those things. They need at least one more hitter in this lineup. Otherwise they're fielding a lineup that looks very weak on paper. So a little surprised by that, but let's see what the next move is because there's got to be something else coming that makes more sense than Luke Voigt. The Candelario pickup, they really think he's a strong bounce back candidate for a few reasons. A couple of years ago, he led the league in doubles. He can hit the ball with authority, has done that with the Tigers. They felt like he got a little too homer happy last year. It led to a really high pop-up rate. He was getting under everything. They want him to be more focused on line drives and even, yes, ground balls. And this is where I, it was interesting. People with the team actually said they look at the new rules coming next year, the lack of the shift. They think this is a prime candidate to benefit from that, hitting to a lot of ground balls to the pull side, which for the last several years are automatic outs because of the shift. And now there's a chance those turn into hits. So they actually, that was a calculated move on their part, believing that Candelario might naturally bounce back just as a result of the rule changes next year. Yeah, Jamer Candelario, uh, going into his age 29 season, has played both third base and first base. He himself was non-tendered by the Tigers in November, had a really bad 2022 season, OPS plus of just 83. But over the 2020 and 2021 seasons, he, for the Tigers, had an OPS plus of 125. This is a guy who can't hit. So I have no problem with this acquisition. I think it makes total sense. And this is exactly the kind of thing that the Nats should be doing in free agency. And hopefully he plays well. And hopefully you can trade him right away to somebody else at some point in the 2023 season. Like, this is not a long-term piece. This is a potential trade chip. And, you know, there's nothing, I think, wrong with that. You know, with Eric Fetty, the Nats obviously would never say this, but they have got to be hoping that this guy does not find success elsewhere, that this is not Austin Voth part two, because what a bad look that would be. Like you said, he was given ample opportunity by the Nats. Uh, he pitched for the Nats at the major league level over parts of six seasons, 454 into third innings, ERA of 541. Like it just did not work out. But why is that, right? And maybe it's just all on Fetty. He's just not a very good major league pitcher. By the way, another first round pick that ends up not working out for the Nats. But yeah, you know, I have wondered with him. I think we all wonder with a guy like, say, Patrick Corbin on another team, would these struggles be happening? And I think it's going to be interesting to see what does end up happening with Eric Fetty. Now, to that end, we also in recent weeks have had this. And to me, this is like the ultimate example of news that is both exciting and infuriating if you're a Nats fan. And the news is that the Nats have created a bunch of new front office positions and that the team is hiring for these positions this offseason. So, you know, even with the ownership uncertainty, it does sound like the Nats are adding to their front office payroll or adding to their infrastructure. So I think we should at least note that. But the idea with some, if not most of these positions is basically the Nats are beefing up their analytics department. They're adding the Hawkeye cameras to various affiliates. And so they're bringing in people who can help them sort of process that data. The Nats are trying to take a step forward in the departments of not just analytics, but also like biomechanics and sports science, which is a big part of the way teams are being run now. You know, it's not just about having a bunch of nerds who understand math. It's also about having people who understand things like sports science and biomechanics and what this motion data means and how to take advantage of it. So I think it's great that the Nats are doing this. But I think you also have to say, A, what took so long, and B, this is an acknowledgement that the Nats have been behind in this stuff. You know, we've wondered about this. And, you know, especially with something like the Austin Vogt thing, why did he do so well and ride away with the team like the Orioles when he had struggled with the Nats for so long? And, you know, you never are positive about this stuff, but boy, it sure had seemed like the Nats were behind in the departments of analytics and sports science. And the fact that they're adding people to this, I think is confirmation of, yeah, they have been behind and yeah, they do have catching up to do. So on the one hand, bravo to the Nats for taking a step forward in these departments. But on the other hand, I think this is a big part of why the Nats are where they are. And I don't think it's wrong to say, why was this a problem to begin with? Yeah, no, you're 100% right on all of that. And I think you get to a certain point here 
you know, you're now three years removed from the World Series and we've seen it progressively get worse and worse along the way. And we've talked ad nauseum about the farm system and their inability to develop players. And at some point you have to ask yourself, well, why has that been the case? And what can we do differently? We know last winter they did make changes to their player development system in personnel, more so on the field with coaches, managers, instructors. They beefed up the number of personnel they had there. Now you're seeing them do more on the analytics side of it and and an acknowledgement that they need to do better or at least see if that makes a difference. They've had so much trouble over the years here turning players into something better than they would appear on paper, that kind of thing. And I know it's frustrated a lot of people within the organization. There hasn't always been the resources devoted to it. It hasn't always just been the mindset of the front office, which, as we all know, is littered with a lot of old school scouts. And look, they won a World Series that way. So you can understand why they might have felt like, let's keep doing this. This is the right way to win. But you get to a certain point, you have to be able to adapt. And this is an acknowledgement of that. Now, what's the tangible effect? I don't know. It may be a long time until we see any of that. And you still, it's one thing to add these positions and, and acknowledge that you need to have more of this. The second part of the equation is you have to implement it. You have to have the people who can implement it to the players, to the coaches at every level of the organization and see some tangible results from it. So this isn't something that I don't think you're going to see overnight. I don't think all of a sudden come next April, you're going to say, oh, wow, there's such a difference in how they're playing and performing. What is it? Oh, it must be all the new analytics guys they brought in. It doesn't happen like that. This takes time. But it was a necessary step and an acknowledgement on their part that they needed to do something in that regard because they were lagging way behind the rest of the league. Yeah. And, you know, especially with something like this Hawkeye camera vision and tracking system that you're only just now installing that at Nationals Park and at your minor league affiliates. And when I say now, I mean, it's like I think they actually started last year, but whatever the case may be, it's like, you know, other teams have had this in place for a while here. And so it's like, why weren't you in from the get go? Did you think that this wasn't like going to be a thing? Did you think that this wasn't going to catch on? And so I do wonder about what you just said, and that is, So have they been so behind in this stuff because Mike Rizzo just hasn't been very in on this stuff? Or have they been so behind on this stuff because Mike Rizzo hasn't been given the money with which to do this stuff? You know, has Mike wanted to do more with this stuff and just hasn't had the budget to do more with this stuff? Because Mike isn't some guy who just is like so anti-analytics. Like I've heard him talk about this stuff many times over the years. He's open to it, but that isn't his background. And I think he's one of these guys who would need to bring in people for whom this stuff is their background and who have a real expertise in understanding all of these things. You know, I I think the best guys who run baseball operations are guys who know what they know and know what they don't know. And if you don't know certain things, you bring in people who do know those things. So I think that's a really big question here. Has Mike wanted to do more and just hasn't had the budget to do more with, or has Mike not really been as in on this stuff as he should be? I don't know that we We'll ever have the answer to that, but I think that does matter when you're evaluating Mike Rizzo and you know why the Nats are where they are. My hunch would be is somewhere in between that. I think there probably have been times that he and the organization have wanted to do more and they weren't given the resources to do it. But I think also, like I said, you do things a certain way for a long time and you have success doing it. Let's acknowledge very successful franchise there for a long time, culminating with the World Series. You're probably going to be a little reluctant to say, well, we need to be dramatically rethinking how we do this stuff. Well, why should we have to do that if we're already winning, following the pattern and the the mindset that we've you know all had for decades in this sport? So I, I think it's a combination of the two things. And it is fascinating. Like These are things that you would almost say would be easier to implement had there been a complete overhaul of the whole organization. Talking about GM, front office, all his assistants, player development, even the manager and the coaching staff. And that's not the case here, we know. Mike Rizzo is still the GM. His front office still has tons of these guys who he's worked with for a long time. Davey Martinez is still the manager. His whole coaching staff is returning. Yes, there have been changes at the minor league level in player development. So, You're having new people brought in that have to now try to implement what they're doing and convince the people who've been here for a long time how to integrate this all into it. In some ways, that might be a bigger challenge than if they had wiped the slate clean and started all over as an organization. 
And I think the concern is that the Nats may have to wipe the slate clean. And they obviously haven't done that. And they're not going to do that until the ownership situation is resolved. And so you almost feel like you're delaying the inevitable here. You know, we don't know. Like, it's tough with Mike Rizzo because overall, he's had such a great run as Nationals general manager. But I think what's also true is the things that worked in 2009 You can't just use that playbook in 2022. Like the game has evolved. The entire sport really has changed. And if you're not developing and evolving with the times, then you're going to get buried by the times. And that's kind of, I think, what's happened with the Nats. So is Rizzo the right guy moving forward? We don't know. But if it turns out that he isn't, you know, you think about it like you're now multiple years into this rebuild you may have to reset the clock back to zero if you know the team ends up getting sold and the new ownership comes in and ends up blowing up the entire organization. So like that's kind of in the back of your mind too, that just because a rebuild has started, it doesn't mean that, okay, in another year or two or three, you're going to be right where you want to be. Like, no, you can get lost in rebuild land and you know be out in the wilderness for years. Plenty of teams in all sports have had that happen to them. And you know so that's, that's kind of a, a concern, a fear that I think you have if you're a Nats fan. You're in the rebuild. Are you tracking toward coming out of the rebuild within the next few years? Are you on the right path in your rebuild? And we don't know the answer to that right now. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it is a great question. You're right. It's just this assumption that it's going to work. But I think it's interesting along those lines that Rizzo himself, he said it several times over the last year, and he made a point to say it again this week. He says, we've done this before. We know how to do this. And he's talking about 2009 to 2012, and he draws a lot of comparisons to that. He's essentially saying, I know how to rebuild an organization if you give me the tools to do it, but he's going to follow the way that he's done it in the past. While there may be some new elements to this and new numbers and techniques and things that he has at his disposal, at his core, he's still going to do this the way he believes is the right way, the way that he's done it before and had success. And I do think it's a fascinating dynamic to this. And it raises the question of how far do you let him and his group try to do that? Now, without new ownership, of course, he's going to get the opportunity to do that for as long as this goes. But I think we talked about last year when they picked up his option. You know, once you decide to tear it down and you're going to rebuild, don't you have to give him the opportunity to see this thing through? And that's a few years down the road. Yes. But also, like you point out, if it doesn't work, you are almost starting from zero because it's probably going to be a completely different approach and mindset at that point. And that can really set the organization back a lot. And so I think there's also, I'm sure Mike Rizzo deep down is feeling some pressure to show tangible progress in this next year for his own sake to show everyone that, yes, we're on the right track, stick with me. But if ownership is not giving him any resources to go out and try to do much to his major league roster, that could lead to a situation where a year from now, we're talking about a team that lost 107 games again. And now are we asking, is Mike Rizzo the right man for this job or not? Well, I think what's tricky too is that you can't be gauging the rebuild right now by what's happening on the field. Like the rebuild and how it's doing truly is going to be determined by what's happening off the field, what's happening in the minors, what's happening with player development. I mean, because the truth is, whether the Nats this coming season lose 90 games or 100 games or 110 games, it really doesn't matter because we know that the team probably isn't going to be good, you know, barring the unforeseen. You never do know. But like by and large, I think most people anticipate another rough season. But that's not the way to gauge the rebuild, right? The way to gauge the rebuild is what's the state of the farm system? How are the prospects doing? Are you adding to your prospect inventory? Are guys being developed properly? And we're not going to have the answers to those questions for a while. You know, I am encouraged by, hey, even with the ownership uncertainty, the team is adding to its analytic staffing. I think that's a good sign. I think that's something that the team desperately needed. So maybe you can make progress in the ways that are truly meaningful in this rebuild. And, you know, going back to what you said about Rizzo, I don't think that he thinks this. Boy, I certainly hope that he doesn't think this. You can't just do things the same way that you did them in 2009 and expect everything to turn out beautifully like it did back then. Like, this is different. The game has changed. The sport has evolved in major ways. It's different from five years ago, man. Like, this thing is moving quickly. And so, 
the fact that they're behind is significant because you have to play catch up. But understand, too, while you're playing catch up, the teams that already are ahead of you are advancing in ways that you probably haven't even thought of. Like, it's not like teams like, say, the Dodgers and Yankees are where they are and are just staying there. No, every year they're climbing the ladder of progress. You're just trying to catch up to where they are now. By the time you do catch up, and that's assuming that you do, who knows if you will, who knows where the likes of the Yankees and Dodgers and other analytically inclined teams will be, you know, on that ladder. So, like, that's another part of this as well. It's a daunting task. It's not impossible. Teams have done it. I certainly think the Nats are capable of doing it, but it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of commitment, and it's going to take an admission of, it's not 2009 anymore, okay? Like, things are different. 2009 was over a decade ago. Our world has changed, and the sport really has changed, even in that period of time. And I just hope behind the scenes, Rizzo and his people are cognizant of this. One final point on that about the idea, and I agree with you that progress for the organization does not need to be measured in success at the big league level. But it's worth noting that during that last one more than a decade ago, their win total went from 59 to 69 to 80 to 98. And that was a tangible sign of progress. And you heard both Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez this week say, 100 losses is not acceptable to us. We need to be better than that. So while they know that they could lose 105 games and it could still be a successful season if they are seeing more of their young guys come up and make a difference that you think they are going to be the future here. I firmly believe that. But I think they also deep down, right or wrong, feel like they need to show some tangible results, wins and losses to make everybody out there believe that they are on the right path. And I think that starts with a new owner. It's only going to be human nature for whoever owns this team to look at them and say, well, did you improve by 10 games this year? Okay, you guys must be doing something right. Or no, oh, hey, you only won 55 games again? Uh, I'm not so sure about this anymore. Well, I think that's going to be huge too. When the team gets new ownership, do you have someone who is mature enough in his or her understanding of baseball to know that with a rebuild, it's not necessarily about the one loss record at the major league level? That's massive. You know, we talk about like, when is the team going to get sold? That doesn't even address a whole another huge component of all of this, which is to whom is the team sold, right? Is the new ownership smart ownership, ownership that's willing to spend, ownership that understands the way that MOB is done in 2022 as compared to, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago? Like, so that's another conversation. <laughs> Hey guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. You know, Window Nation right now is doing the impossible. Despite the fact that costs are up, we have inflation, uh, rates are rising, Window Nation is giving you 0% interest for five full years on new windows. Yeah, no interest payments for 60 months in addition to two windows free with every two windows that you buy. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION and make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. This winter will be cold. Uh, temperatures already are dropping. We are facing the highest energy costs in over 25 years, an all-time high up as much as 28% from last year. Stay warmer and more comfortable. Add to your home's value and lower your energy bills with Window Nation's incredible savings, zero interest payments for five years, plus two free windows with every two windows that you buy. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. The longer that you have old drafty windows, the more money that you're wasting on your heating bills. Get yourself some new Window Nation windows and take advantage of this great offer. Zero percent interest for five full years, no interest payments for 60 months, and two free windows with every two windows that you buy. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90-NATION. That's windownation.com or 866-90-NATION. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. In terms of, okay, well, what now, right? Because the offseason continues. The 
winter meetings are done. By the way, it's funny to me, the winter meetings don't happen in winter. It's still fall. Winter doesn't officially start until later this month. It's funny, spring training, it doesn't happen in spring. Spring training happens in winter, and yet we call it spring training, right? Spring doesn't happen until March. So I don't know, maybe at some point that needs to be addressed. But what do you think is next? I mean, and you know, next may not be until the middle of January. I understand that. But do you think it's a pitcher? Do you think it's another Jamer Candelario type? What is on your radar as someone who covers the team? They are saying that a pitcher is number one on their priority list. Now, again, that may not mean it happens right away. It could be a while, and we don't really know how much they're willing to commit to this. What was notable to me all week, you saw some of these pitchers get signed by other teams, and you've got some very mediocre, even to substandard starting pitchers getting $10 million contracts for one year. Kyle Gibson went to the Orioles for $10 million. Nothing special, Kyle Gibson. You've heard Jordan Lyles' name thrown out there. Jordan Lyles, every time I would look up Patrick Corbin's stats over the last three years and say, well, is he the worst at this or that or that? Inevitably, the two worst pitchers in baseball the last three years end up being Patrick Corbin and Jordan Lyles. Okay. That's a guy they may be looking at. So, what we're talking about are not real game changers and how much you're even willing to spend on that. So, Let's see. They do believe that that is a huge number one priority for them. Somebody who can give them 175 innings, 30 starts, and just eat those innings and give them a chance. But let's be honest, really, the success of that rotation is predicated not on whoever that pitcher is. It's predicated on Mackenzie Gore, Cade Cavalli, Josiah Gray, those three young guys leading the way. And to some extent, Patrick Corbin being you know not the worst pitcher in baseball, but hopefully a little bit better than that. They need somebody to to also fill out the rotation, give them innings, but that's not really going to be the difference maker for them. So I think that's number one. And then number two along the way will be another bat. Davey mentioned that he would prefer a left-handed bat. I know he says they could go a couple different ways and there's positional versatility. I'm just looking at left field right now. Right now, their left fielders are Alex Call and another guy they picked up we haven't talked about yet, Stone Garrett, who came from the Diamondbacks, either hits it out of the park or strikes out. (laughs) Very little big league experience. I don't think he's in the mix for a starting job. They need a left fielder. They do not have one. Everything else they can kind of figure out, that's the one spot. So I would think that's the next one on the list. But again, how much are they willing to spend? I don't get the sense that they're going to go out and spend a lot for those kind of players. But they definitely at minimum need another starting pitcher and another, you know, something like resembling a middle of the order bat. I actually think Jordan Lyles would make sense uh, for the Nats. I actually <laughs> talked about this in my podcast recently. So Lyles was horrible for the Texas Rangers in recent years. He was better with the O's this past season. Now, they did essentially choose Kyle Gibson over Lyles, but he is the kind of guy who you could maybe get 175 innings out of and you know maybe give you like an ERA in the fours, which is the kind of work that he did this past season. You know, with Gibson, it's true. He had an ERA over five during his time with the Phillies. Things did not go well from that regard, but his FIP was actually better than his ERA. The Phillies defense the last two seasons has been really bad. And Mike Elias, in talking about why the O's went with Gibson, talked about how, hey, we view him as someone who we can fix and we can maximize. And that's where the Nats need to get to. They need to get to a place to where they develop an eye for this stuff and they say, hmm, this guy has X, Y, and Z going for him. Okay, maybe his back of the baseball card stats aren't glowing, but there are things about him that we think we can really maximize and squeeze every last drop of productivity out of. And so you get to a point to where you can fix guys and you can get the most out of guys and you can buy guys on the low and end up trading them on the high or end up getting a production out of them to where they outperform their contracts. I think that's been a huge issue for the Nats. They don't do that. They don't ever seem to like win deals. You know, they bring in guys and guys are like worse for them or guys still struggle with them. So, That'll be, I think, a real test of how things are going in player development. Do you get to a point to where you sign the Jordan Lyles of the world, they come to you with a track record that says one thing, but what they end up doing for you is better because you figured out a way to get the most out of those guys. So I think that'll be interesting to see. But yeah, we are in a different world with the Nats and it is something, man. From the last time, like you said, the winter meetings were in San Diego versus this time. I mean, two polar opposites. Who would have predicted that three years ago at the winter meetings? No. And I'm, you know, I think it would be natural to say, well, that was a veteran team. Maybe the window was closing and maybe they'd take some steps back. But I mean, you would have thought that they would have kept at least some of that core together, that they would still be a competitive team. You certainly would not think to yourself, oh, this is a team that's going to have the worst record in the league. 
And like you said, at this point, they've traded everyone away. You mentioned earlier the Trey Turner signing. We don't have to go into the details of all that, but it is remarkable when you think about who this organization had and who they no longer have and how much money those guys have made. And we can talk about it on an individual case-by-case basis and say, well, this is why the Nationals didn't re-sign them and didn't keep them. And you can justify just about any of them. But when you get to the end of all that and you say, they're all gone. They're all gone for a ton of money, except for one, the one guy they signed, Steven Strasburg. And as we know, that has been an unmitigated disaster ever since. Not his fault, but it has been. And in talking to some people also this week about Steven Strasburg, I know a lot of people wonder what's what's going on there. We haven't even mentioned him as like a candidate for the rotation. The good news is he apparently feels really good. <laughs> All the off-season training and workouts and things that he's done he feels good. He has not really started throwing yet. I mean, I think he's playing catch, but not started pitching yet, which you wouldn't do anyways until you get a little closer to spring training. But everybody seems to acknowledge that there's going to come a point when he has to start doing that and start ramping up and then eventually get on a mound and then try to throw pitches. And nobody knows how that's going to go. But there is an acknowledgement, I think at this point, that this is sort of the last shot at it. And either it works and he is able to pitch for them, and now they can start the process of trying to get him back on the mound, pitching in games for them, or it doesn't work, at which point some real serious discussions have to take place between him and the organization to figure out where they go from here. But I think there is an understanding on both sides of the equation, from what I gather, that they can't just keep doing this over and over again, that one way or another, this comes to a head at some point in the spring. Yeah, it's good to hear that because you can't keep doing this. It's not good for you as a team. It's not good for him. And I did think it was telling that the Steven Strasburg quote unquote updates that we got from Rizzo and Davey at the winter meetings were like these non-updates. There's like, again, there's not much to say. There just isn't that much to say right now. And ironically, uh, that does say a lot. Well, you tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast as well, Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram as well, at Nats Chat Podcast. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt as we, of course, are in the holiday season. A Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt makes a great gift. Go to natschatpodcast.square.site. That's natschatpodcast.square.site. If you have the time and haven't yet rated the podcast, please consider doing that. You can give the podcast a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts uh, or on Spotify. You also can write a brief review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts saying that you like the Nats Chat Podcast. The ratings and the reviews help us out a lot, and we very much appreciate you doing them. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with you in a few weeks with another off-season installment of the Nats Chat Podcast. From Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time. Katie, non-basketball related question. We got the Yankee show coming up next on Yes. What's your reaction to Aaron Judge's contract and him getting that? I'm a Nationals fan. I really don't care about Aaron Judge at all. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.